1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Tuesday
2: edition of Bloomberg Sound On. How is possibly only Tuesday? I'm Joe Matthew in Washington with a lot to talk about. We're going to start with the situation in Ukraine. And actually what's happening here in the capital today, it's pretty important as Ukraine makes this last-ditch effort Uh, To pull something here out of the fire in terms of funding, dispatching top leaders from Kyiv to the capital. They're here now, including President Zelensky's chief of staff, the defense ministry, the uh, speaker of the Ukrainian parliament, and President Zelensky himself, not in person, but will zoom in to a meeting with senators uh, later on today to make the case here. This is apparently something that the Biden administration. Uh, helped to arrange. And with us at the table to talk about this, among other issues, is Kurt Volker. You've heard him on the program before, the former U.S. ambassador to NATO, former special representative for Ukraine negotiations. With us at the table, Mr. Ambassador, it's great to see you, and I appreciate your coming here today uh, in, in what's a pretty important moment for the cause in Ukraine. Will this in-person cajoling help?
3: Um You know, it's always good for the Ukrainians to make the case and to be communicating and to give some reassurance that um, any assistance they get is being used well. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is caught up on something completely different. Uh, You have the uh, Republicans, basically a majority of the Republicans and a majority of Democrats as well, Supporting aid to Ukraine. If you took this to a floor vote in the House, you'd get 350 votes. Hmm. What they are concerned about is doing that without something on the, you know, funding for the southern border. Yes, right. Because they want to show that we are taking care of American security in addition to helping Ukraine with its security. Mm -hmm. And this is something the White House doesn't want to do. So they're trying to turn up the heat. On, you know, the the letter that you saw from OMB uh, yesterday, such sharp language, making it so dire, we're going to run out of money, Ukraine's going to fall, it's going to be a disaster, which is partially true. But the reason it's being emphasized that way is to try to avoid getting that funding for the southern border that Mm -hmm. they don't want.
2: So let's unpack a couple of things that you (laughs) just said there, and we'll start with the letter. How is it partially true then? Because Shalanda Young says Ukraine is out of money and running out of
3: time. Right. This is, that's the part that's true. That's what I'm saying. It is true that the money that was approved back in December last year Mm -hmm. uh, was good for a supplemental to carry us till about September. Then we had a small increment on top of that that got us through December. What's in front of the Congress now is enough money to cover us for next year, and then we're not going to have to vote on this again during the election. That's what everybody wants. Um, So that is true that that's when that money is scheduled to run out. What I'm saying is that the uh, emphasis on this now, raising the political yeah. temperature, has all to do with this package that mm-hmm. is trying to get put together in the Senate.
2: So let's talk more about that for a moment then, because you know here we are hashing out details on asylum law, talking about the parole system here in Washington. What does Kyiv make of this debate and, and being somehow this, drawn into the dear, debate about our border?
3: This is the curse of Ukraine. They are always sucked into our domestic politics hmm. in one way or another. How true? Yeah, and they don't like it. They don't want it. They—they they were the subject of the impeachment right. against President Trump. They're the subject of all the Hunter Biden stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they're now the sub You know, they're, they're the the roadkill or the football that gets passed around when we're talking about immigration policy.
2: Wow. And the argument here is we can't help someone else in their security until. We help ourselves.
3: That is the argument that the Republicans are making. And it seems to me, you know, you want we we've been in Washington a long time. We see this almost every year. People raise the temperature on both sides. They go down to the last minute and then they finally just stitch it together, pass a package and is done. And you forget about it. Well, so what's the
2: argument from Vladimir Zelensky today that maybe hasn't been heard already? Is it that Putin will win if you don't pay? I and mean, that's what lawmakers keep hearing, but it's not moving the needle here.
3: No, it's not. It's, it's not a new argument. Uh, it is a, a moral clarity argument that mm. they are actually fighting for democracy, fighting for freedom against barbarianism, against war crimes, horrific things that the Russians have done and continue to do. And I guess one of the things that he'll be saying now is what we are seeing with Hamas terrorism against Israel. It's very similar to what we saw with Russia against Ukraine, just Mm -hmm. on a larger scale.
2: Uh, Let's talk about what's actually happening on the ground there, by the way. We've been so focused on a debate over funding. Uh, We've heard as well that the window could be closing in terms of military opportunity, but we're going into winter. And I believe it was General Mark Kimmett who said uh, on the program that that's actually a good thing for Ukraine, that it will slow things down, that it might actually be an opportunity if Ukraine should have a gap in funding.
3: Right. I I think that Mark is right on that. Um, The Ukrainians have tried to launch a substantial counteroffensive. They got a little bit, but not very much. The Russian defenses have held pretty well. The Ukrainians have then turned toward longer-range precision-guided attacks against logistics and infrastructure that are sustaining the Russian forces. Mm -hmm. If the weather then slows the Russians down in their attacks against Ukraine, they can get a little bit of a breather, and yet they keep the pressure on the Russian logistics through those precision-guided attacks. That actually could work to Ukraine's advantage and help them emerge from the winter a little bit better shape than they're in now.
2: If you went back 20 or 30 years... I know these questions are fun Uh, and you went up on Capitol Hill and got all the Republicans in a room and said, Hey, we've got, we've decimated half the Russian military a little bit more money, we could actually finish this job and no Americans got involved. Would that not be sold? That
3: that would be in a heartbeat. I mean, literally less than 5% of the annual US defense budget has eliminated half of the Russian conventional military capability. It's incredible. The Ukrainians have done the best job of threat reduction of anyone (laughs) from a US
2: perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that leave Ukraine, however, still badly outnumbered?
3: Well, if you think about the numbers here, Russia has poured about 100 to 150 billion into their war effort against Ukraine. The US and the EU, 22 times the size of the Russian economy, hmm. and we've put in about the same amount. So that's why it's stuck. If we actually leaned into this, Russia would be on its back feet.
2: It's. An interesting argument that doesn't seem to be landing terribly well.
3: uh, It's not right now. It's not. And I think one of the things, and again, I, I, I point back to the Republican members in the House, people like Speaker Johnson have indicated that they want to bring it to the floor. They want to vote in favor. But they just want to hear clear answers. What is the goal? What's the strategy for achieving the goal? And what are the resources needed to do it so that we actually do it? Mm-hmm. And instead, we get a lot of very vague statements, like as long as it takes. Well, right. What's it? Uh-huh. <laughs> what, right. what are we trying to do?
2: Well, that's the call that we've been hearing from a number of senators here. Uh, I, I'm, I, there was a particular quote that I was looking for, uh, and I'm not going to find it. But Speaker Johnson wants an endgame. Yeah, He wants to know what the strategy is that will be different in 24 than it was in 23. Is the administration capable of answering that, or is that just the wrong question to be asked?
3: No, I think it's the right question, and I think what we see is the administration doesn't want to answer that hmm. because they don't want to talk about defeating Russia uh, because of the risks of escalation, the mm-hmm. risk of possible nuclear use. They don't want to get sucked into saying something that will then be used against them as saying, oh, you're getting us into World War III. So they just don't want to answer that. But I honestly believe that that we do have to answer that. We can help the Ukrainians defeat the Russian forces so that the war would end that way on better terms and bring Ukraine into NATO as quickly as possible and stop the war, shut it down. Uh, I don't think that anyone really wants to see any nuclear use. I don't think the Russian military wants that. I don't think Putin wants that. Um, but as long as he thinks that they can win... And as long as we keep signaling that we'll never bring him into NATO as long as the war is going on, yeah. that's an incentive for Putin to keep fighting.
2: Could Ukraine win this war in 2024?
3: It could. It could. I think it all depends on what happens inside Russia. You know, they've lost over 100,000 lives fighting this war. That's an awful Amazing. lot. And you think about the number of wounded, you think about the impact in Russian society, mm-hmm. you think about the impact that sanctions have had on travel, on air travel, on Russians not able to use their credit cards when they travel abroad. I mean, this is a significant impact on the Russian society, and you just wonder how long they can sustain that.
2: Well, we are wondering that, and of course, law- lawmakers want to bet on a winner, right? They want someone to say, Yeah, we'll have this thing done by right. July. Uh,
4: yeah,
3: I would flip that around if I was talking to the lawmakers. I'd say, Imagine a situation where Putin wins. Hmm. Where Ukraine is defeated, the U.S. and the West appear not to have had the will and the resolve to defend Ukraine and stop Putin from taking over another country. How is that going to go over anywhere in the world? What are the Iranians going to make of that? What are the Chinese going to make of that? What are the North Koreans going to make of that? You open the door to a lot more risk if you don't help Ukraine win. Kurt
2: Volker, great conversation. I'm so glad you could come in. Former ambassador. Great to see you, sir. Thank you so much. You're uh, always
3: welcome here at the table at Bloomberg. And now we get to hear from the great Rick Davis. That's right. uh, Former
2: colleagues. That's right. Rick is here every day, and he's joined by Jim Kessler today as we assemble our political panel for their take Mm -hmm. on all of this. Uh, Rick Davis your thoughts today on the conversation that we're having and the impact that it might have. Remember, President Zelensky <laughs> was here in person in September. He's going to be zooming into this meeting today. But a lot of folks, very high officials, uh, ranking officials from Kiev are actually pressing flesh today on Capitol Hill in the Senate. Will it matter?
5: Yeah, I think it matters. It mattered then when uh, uh, President Zelensky came, a uh, very well orchestrated uh, trip. He's done this repeatedly at you know uh, global uh, confabs around the world in other capitals in NATO, uh, and so I, I give him immense credit for uh, knowing who his friends are, right? Making sure he spends the time and his his senior leadership spend the time talking with, answering questions for, and representing how much value uh, our money and and weapon systems and support mean to the Ukrainian people and to the war effort. Uh, that being said, I think you know. Ambassador Volker, uh, great shout out. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, uh, you know, uh, he makes it a very critical point, which is uh, th- that this is a very nuanced and managed message at this point, right? Nobody is talking about how they get to an ultimate victory over Russia. They, you know, it's it's one of these things where it's like, how do you sustain the battle without being too specific on what the Ultimate end game is, in other words, will you win in six months? Will this surge mm-hmm. result in, you know, regaining x amount of territory? Um, and and so we're in this period of time where uh, it's harder to pinpoint what the positive effects of our support are than it is to be able to talk about what the negative impact would be if we don't support Ukraine. And of course, that's what we saw in that OMB yeah. language it focused on mm-hmm. here's the negative impact congress that you're going to have you're going to reward vladimir putin if you don't get that money in the pipeline so uh i think this is really a critical period of time and i'm and i'm and i'm not surprised that that they are uh the ukrainian officials are drawing uh parallels to the attacks uh from hamas on israel because that is what's first to mind right now it's still a fresh concept yep. and, and 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 as as Ambassador Volker said it's just a, a it's a matter of scale I mean that same things happened uh, in Ukraine it just happened uh, longer and 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 impacted even more people. Jim Kessler, welcome back.
2: It's good to see you. Speaker Mike Johnson tweets, Republicans, quote, have legitimate concerns about the lack of a clear strategy in Ukraine, a path to resolving the conflict, or a plan for adequately ensuring accountability for aid, unquote. What should be the answer to that?
4: That's an unhelpful tweet. Uh, let's let's just start with that. Um, I thought what Ambassador Volcker said was you know, very important and worth listening to. And the most important thing was, imagine that Vladimir Putin wins. I mean, that is the case that you, you know, that Republicans need to hear. Look, I'm I'm shocked (laughs) and disappointed where a lot of elected Republicans are. There is a growing isolationist wing within the Republican Party that says that America is, not an essential force for good a military force for good out in the world and we're seeing that in Ukraine and you know look I think we we all had greater hopes that the last six months would bring more gains
2: take a quick breath on that Jim we're going to have much more time straight ahead with Jim Kessler and Rick Davis
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. An all-senators classified
2: briefing is set for a bit later today, a briefing on Ukraine that will feature... President Zelensky himself via Zoom to make a last-ditch pitch for funding. But senators just got a whole bunch more news here. We're going to talk about this. Uh, We'll talk through all of it, in fact, with our panel. Jim Kessler from Third Way, Democratic analyst and Republican strategist Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors are with us here with breaking news. Now, NBC and Politico both reporting that the coach relents. Senator Tommy Tuberville is releasing his holds. He's lifting his holds on a number of military promotions that, of course, have been held up for months here in his lone man protest against the abortion travel policy at the Pentagon. Uh, Details now, this happened behind closed doors at a, a GOP luncheon a short time ago. Tuberville will release holds except for four stars. We actually told you about this in reporting a couple of weeks ago that this might be the off-ramp, the form that this takes. Let them all go but the four stars. Let these families who have been uh, holding personal decisions, keeping kids out of school, not being able to move and so forth, let them go and get some movement here. This, of course, following a rule change that Senator Chuck Schumer brought forth, and that's where we we'll are start with our panel here. Jim Kessler, uh, they said it would take Republicans to end this. Was it in fact Chuck
4: Schumer that paved the road? Well, they did. And, you know, let's give credit to Mitch McConnell on this, too, because, you know, he wanted this to end as well. Uh, yeah. Trooperville caved. Let's, let's be clear. He should have caved six months ago. We have too many performance artists in the U.S. Congress and in the U.S. Senate right now. This was an absolute pointless waste of time for the United States Senate. Our military leaders did not need this. Uh, congratulations to Chuck Schumer for, you know, twisting his arms and congratulations for Mitch McConnell for showing his impatience on this. Hmm.
2: What do you think, Rick Davis? We've talked about this a lot. We've even had Tommy Tuberville come on to defend his position here. Was it that rule change? Was it the threat of finally having Republicans uh, point him in a different direction that changed his view?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nothing else actually happened. Uh, the, the, In fact, I, as I understand from the reporting, uh, he even said that the deal he would like to do is he'll lift the hold on 400 nominations Uh, for confirmation if uh, Republicans uh, chose to vote against the standing rule that would have undermined his ability to block any of them. So, uh, look, I mean, nobody wanted to change this Senate rule. Uh, They shouldn't have had to, as as Jim Kessler said, that none of this should have been happening along the way. Uh, Tommy Tuberville, the coach, uh, did a lot to diminish uh, our military and his uh, sort of performance art around abortion. And at the end of the day, he's not going to get anything other than now a group of four stars who have to kowtow to him in order to get their confirmations uh, passed. Mm. I mean, why you would let 400 nominations go forward and hold up the people who are most responsible for making the decisions about our country's security abroad and keep them locked up. It makes no sense. But nothing he has done on this issue has made Mm. much sense today. What is the point
2: of that? Jim is, is that sort of the equivalent of the, you know, the, the top 1% they're elitists or something. He's, he's disparaged high ranking generals before saying their staff does all the work. Is that the point of that delineation with the four stars?
4: So you're asking me to get into the head of the Senator from Alabama here. Uh, (laughs) It's not a place I generally try and tread. I, Look, I think he's trying to get some big leap of showing that he's still standing on some sort of principle while he beats a belated, but at this point, hasty retreat. Um, You know, there's this myth that there's wokeness in the army and in Mm -hmm. the military that I think is, again, I think it plays uh, on social media and on some cable channels and... You know, we just have too much, too many people playing to the bleachers on this in the United States Senate. And he backed down 95% of the way, you know, hopefully he'll back down the other 5% when, you know, when there's no, there's no, no victory for him to find here.
2: Well, I wonder what playing of the bleachers means for border reform here, Rick, because that's what we were getting to at the top of the hour here. This pitch from top brass in Ukraine to trying to unlock funding here in the U.S., having heard from the White House that they're out of money. We're all out of money in funding this war effort by the end of the year. Uh, it all hinges on a border deal, though. We know that. And the language from those who are directly involved is remarkable. Uh, Senator uh, Cornyn to NBC News. This is not a traditional negotiation. This is a price that has to be paid in order to get the supplemental. They're not interested in dancing with Democrats here. They want a certain measure of reform here that's going to have to unlock the Ukraine money. Speaker Johnson says it's H.R. Two or nothing. Now look at Jim Lankford, Republican, who's leading the negotiations. He says, we're going to get it resolved but I've got to pick up 20 senators, 20 Democrats, rather, in the Senate to get to 60. Chris Murphy says, I understand the consequences of the tactic Republicans have decided to use. And it's Vladimir Putin marching into Europe. Does this sound like we're close to a deal, Rick?
5: Yeah, it actually does. Um, that means there's I love a lot it. of pressure. Just, just a couple of days ago, we were talking about they killed the negotiation on Friday. Everybody went home. We thought there'd be progress. There wasn't. Now, after 24 hours in town, we've got all these different scenarios. uh, And ironically, none of them have anything to do with the policy that Republicans are trying to get embedded. It's like, how do you count votes? Uh, And look, this is how Washington works. It used to be called a trade. I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want, and we'll Mm -hmm. call that a deal. Uh, Now it's called extortion Uh, if you want funding for Ukraine and for Israel and for Taiwan, uh, then you have to give me my southern border funding uh, the way I want it and the rules uh, that go along with it. I, I actually think this is a positive. It's a crappy way to do uh, business. Uh, welcome to Washington. But if we could get border security or some you know, sort of manifestation of that, uh, along with funding these important fights, uh, that the West is endorsed, uh, you know, I, I'll take it as I can get it. As as Ambassador Volcker said, if you got that bill in front of the House, it doesn't matter what the speaker yeah. says. There are 350 votes. They're going to say, let's go forward.
2: Isn't that something? Jim Kessler, you worked for Chuck Schumer. Maybe you can get into his brain a little bit here because Jim Lankford, who's actually touching. Democrats, he's he's actually dealing with this in a real way and leading negotiations, says HR2 did not get a single Democrat vote in the House. So what does Chuck Schumer think he can sell Democrats in the Senate?
4: Well, let me just say first, that I think Rick Davis is right. I looked at this blow up and my first thought was, oh, I think they're getting close to a deal. I mean, it's always huh. darkest before the dawn. And, you know, huh. the truth is, is that they're the right people are in the room on this and you know chris murphy is the right democrat kirsten cinema former democrat now an independent uh, she's the right person in the room uh, the republicans there langford and others like they're the right people and this feels like something is going to get done and you know i think schumer probably feels this this way as well i just want to say though on the border that, that look Republicans have always had an advantage on this issue because if nothing gets done, if there's chaos at the border, it benefits Republicans politically. And that's been the way it's been for over 20 years now. So they get to yeah. play a stronger hand on this and, you know, force Democratic concessions because walking away, there's very little price for them. But I'm fairly optimistic that we're going to get something done more so than I was 48 hours ago.
2: Does it include actual asylum law change, Jim?
4: The, I, my guess is there will, will be some asylum law changes. I mean, there's there's plenty of Democrats who agree that there needs to be some changes to asylum. And mm-hmm. you need to create a system that is, you know, fair, fast, and final um, with asylum. But it has to be fair, and it has to be, you know... A, a coherent, fast system. It can't be a complete closed door, which some Republicans want. It, it their yeah. Asylum is legit, but it does need reforms.
2: I hope people appreciate what we have going here on this program. These are two individuals in Jim and Rick who have actually been in the room for these kind of negotiations. You can find a lot of places where we'll have a panel scream at each other and get nowhere, but these are the real insights
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Senator Tommy Tuberville,
2: in his single man blockade against military promotions in protest of the Pentagon, abortion travel policy, which we've talked about endlessly here on this program. He appears to be buckling to pressure from within his own party, knowing that there was a rule change that would allow them to move these promotions on block. And Chuck Schumer now says that he does plan to move military promotions as soon as possible. It's not all of them, though. Tuberville says he's lifting the hold on all promotions shy of four-star generals. And we're trying to get our heads around uh, the logic there. But this is moving as we have a grand debate over border security underway here, a big ask on Ukraine, as we talked about earlier, President Zelensky speaking remotely with senators in a classified all senators briefing today. And we have a lot to talk about with Stephanie Murphy, the former Congresswoman from Florida is with us, who of course served on the January 6th committee, back with us at the table today in Washington. Welcome back to the Capitol, it's lovely to have you. It's great to and be And it's good you. to see you. I didn't think I'd be talking to you about Tommy Tuberville today. Uh, and I know that you've, you have a background at the Defense Department, and it's something we discussed before in a state Of course, that you represented teaming with veterans and active members of the military. Why would you stop at four stars? Do you get that?
7: I don't actually get it, and I think it's incredibly damaging to our Defense Department, but also to our national security. We are in a situation where we have a ground war in Europe. We have war in the Middle East. We need leadership in those post like yesterday, yeah. and so I've never really understood why he wanted to hold those things up, putting our national security at jeopardy for his own um, personal political mm-hmm. uh, motives.
2: Well, we, you know, even when we asked him here at Bloomberg, he seemed to kind of resent the the upper ranks of the military as being elitist, as relying on staff. They don't do a lot; they didn't get a lot done anyway. Uh, he was quoted. As saying, never mind the whole wokeism and all of that. Is, is that what this is? Some kind of poke at elitism in the military?
7: You know, if you work at the Department of Defense, you know that the general officers and the flag officers provide incredible leadership, and our um, our system of leadership in our military is the advantage that we have over a lot of our adversaries. Mm-hmm. You know, you, when you look at the Russian war, like they talk about how Russia's army is. Uh, basically failing because they don't have good military leadership. So I don't think that uh, he's right in criticizing our flag and general officer ranks. Um, They provide important uh, role in in both the department and as well as out in the field.
2: Well, I felt like it's worth asking someone who's actually done this before because you hear a lot from folks who've never served and never worked for DoD uh, and it's it's an easy target sometimes in the case of Tommy Tuberville you you wonder if this chink in the armor it's more than that obviously more than a uh, than half of the promotions he's been holding up or being lifted but maybe this leads to a, a, a him to stand out altogether. Will Republicans be the ones to make that happen?
7: I certainly hope so. Republicans for so long have wrapped themselves in the American flag. Supposedly the people who support the military, support law enforcement, are supposed to be strong on national security. For them to have somebody who's never served in uniform, might I add, stand in the way of um, these... confirmations is really kind of shameful. I'm glad that they finally applied enough pressure on him that he's standing down. But he needs to stand all the way down and allow the four stars to get um, confirmed as well.
2: It's pretty remarkable how long this has been going on for. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about, as I mentioned here. And boy, it must be days like these, you miss the job. I say that sarcastically, because we've got uh, a lot on the line, and it's riding on a deal on border security. We spent the last hour with Jim Kessler and Rick Davis, who both were encouraged by some of the rhetoric, the the frustration, the exasperation that we're hearing from members on both sides, suggesting that that is usually a darkest before dawn kind of moment here. What are you hearing from your former colleagues? And having been in the middle of this yourself, are we capable of doing this right now?
7: Well, um, the Congress is so narrowly held, both in the Senate and in the House, Mm -hmm. and the House has demonstrated that it is quite chaotic, this Congress. So is it capable of anything? We can't even figure out how to fund the government. That's right. And they've kicked that can down the road into next year, but they're really trying to focus on this supplemental that addresses Israel and Indo-Pacific, as well as Ukraine and border security. But you have to... have people who are willing to negotiate and to get to yes. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is over the weekend, um, the Republicans doubled down on um, positions that just aren't going to be palatable and aren't um, in a place of moving off of those or even trying to find common ground. Hopefully, as we get closer to the day that they get to leave for the holiday, um, that will create some pressure and um, get people in a more uh, uh, positive mood and maybe um, Mm -hmm. willing to negotiate. So
2: what's the fault line? For Democrats, because we're hearing from members, particularly those who might be up for re election, uh, that they might be open to changes to asylum law in principle. Uh, changes to parole that allow the president to make humanitarian exceptions might be a bridge too far. Where are the fault lines in this?
7: You know, I think any changes in the policy has to also begin with bolstering our actual border security. So none of the programs that we have in place for people to seek asylum or um, legal status in the United States really work unless we actually know who's coming in and out. And mm-hmm. so that's really the first line that they have to be able to agree on is that some amount of resources for border security. And then we can look at changing our programs and creating legal paths. Um, pathways, whether that's asylum or an expanded visa program. And, you know, we're really starting to talk about maybe a little more comprehensive immigration reform that has all of yes, those key right. elements, but which we be don't remarkable. have enough time for that. We've yeah. been
2: waiting a generation for that to yeah. happen. There was a quote uh, from John Cornyn that jumped off the page to me mm-hmm. in a conversation with NBC news. This is not a traditional negotiation. This is a price that has to be paid in order to get the supplemental, which sounds like extortion.
7: You know, this is something that happens in Washington all the time when uh, there is broad bipartisan support, as there is for Ukraine funding or Israel funding. um, It becomes a leverage point for something that has a little less support um, and is a little more difficult. And I think that's why you see the supplemental funding lumped together Mm -hmm. with border security.
2: Well, so maybe this is an opportunity, though. Maybe I don't know if you're optimistic about this or not. Do we flip this around and say that this is, in fact, an opportunity to finally unlock an agreement on border funding because of the urgency behind Ukraine and Israel?
7: I certainly hope so. I, I'm an optimist, and I think that you know maybe one of the interesting outcomes of having such narrowly held congresses and divided government is a push to more bipartisanship, mm-hmm. because you can't get it done with just one party anymore. Sure, right.
2: Wouldn't Democrats love to go... On the trail this year, though, and say, hey, we helped to solve the border crisis?
7: I think they need to. Okay. Um, The president needs this. He needs to not only be able to have a win as it relates to foreign policy and national security, but also domestic uh, border security.
2: Your governor in Florida certainly talks about it a lot. Um, (laughs) He sure does. would Would that take the teeth out of that argument? For Joe Biden even on the in the presidential campaign trail, because he'll have to face this one way or the other.
7: I think it would um, defang at least one of the attack lines against him. I think the American people feel both some economic insecurity as well as some physical insecurity, and this would at least address the physical security part yeah. in some measure if they felt like we were addressing the border security issues.
2: Do you believe the administration that Ukraine is out of money, that we're out of time?
7: You know, I believe that Congress likes to test those huh. deadlines. You know, when would you they test that, if you were still there, <laughs> I, I'm right. not sure I would. But I'm somebody who <laughs> believes in supporting our allies and right. uh, fighting against uh, authoritarians. But. Um, that's what uh, you know. Congress works best when it has a deadline, and um, they've put that deadline out at the end of the year. Um, hopefully, they can clear this out of the way so that when they come back from the holiday break, they can focus on appropriations that and would funding be a concept,
2: the actual spending bills. Yeah. Congresswoman, how dare you? Uh, we're spending time with Stephanie Murphy, the former Congresswoman from Florida. Mike Johnson speaking today, the Speaker of the House, about the January 6th committee. And I thought, okay, well, we need to get. The Congresswoman's reaction to this. I don't know if you heard what he said, but a couple of days ago, he decided to release all of the security footage from January 6th. Today, he implied that more needs to be done to obscure the faces of the rioters before the rest is released so they are not somehow uh, targeted by DOJ. And he went on to say this about the work of the committee. This is literally just a couple of hours ago. Speaker Mike Johnson.
6: I think the January 6th committee was a partisan exercise. Uh, They they, they claimed that it was bipartisan, but I think we all recognize that the the two Republican members that served on that uh, committee uh, had another agenda. I I think that what we got was a biased report. I think they hid some of the uh, important evidence. And uh, look, we want the American people to draw their own conclusions.
2: And they will by hearing conversations like these. So I want you to to react or respond the, the way that you see fit. But knowing that Mike Johnson tried to help overturn the 2020 election results in writing that amicus brief on the Texas case, what is he trying to do here?
7: You know, it's really deeply disappointing that the Speaker of the House is trying to shield people who actually attacked the House in the Capitol um, physically on January 6th, but it isn't surprising. As you said, he was a part of one of the efforts to overturn uh, the uh, outcome of a free and fair election. Um, but it should underscore for Americans the importance of this coming election. Um, imagine if on January 6th, uh, we have a Speaker Johnson with the gavel and um, he's able to delay The certification of uh, presidential, which was what they tried to do on January 6th. The the purpose was to delay um, the certification. I think we'd be in a a lot of trouble as a democracy. Um, And so, you know, we are seeing signs all over the place how important this next election is. And I know everybody always says this is the most important election every um, four years. Every four years. (laughs) But I honestly. Does it get more important every four years? Is that why? (laughs) Well, when we're looking at the possibility of walking ourselves into electing a dictator or somebody who. Who intends to use authoritarian um, means to govern uh, you know I, I believe the former president when he says he will seek retribution when he he lives up to the things that he promises that he's gonna do and so um, I think that's a really dangerous situation to put our democracy do you think
2: in. reelecting Donald Trump is electing a dictator
7: he has um, made statements um, about how he plans on using his power, about how he plans on changing the Department of Justice, about how he plans on going after political opponents. Do
2: mm-hmm. you think it meets that definition?
7: I definitely think it has shades of um, authoritarianism and definitely is not democ- yeah. dem- democratic.
2: Let me push it a step further. Liz Cheney was on TV this morning, and her book has been— Uh, Quite the trove over the past couple of days the book just being released today. I believe she was asked by NBC News uh, If Donald Trump was elected if he would ever leave if he would attempt to overstay his term She said a hundred percent. Yes That if he is reelected he will try to hold on to power as long as possible and never leave the White House Do you agree with that?
7: You might remember that um The former president uh, remarked in awe at uh, President Xi's ability to make himself, uh, you know, stay in power forever. That's part of the stump speech now. Right. And so, and January 6th was an attempt to stay. Um, The difference was that there were people um, involved who stood up to him, Republicans primarily, who wouldn't let uh, their commitment to him override their commitment to this country. I'm not sure we'll be so lucky the next time
2: must be strange for you to rationalize the work that you did on the January 6th committee as a career-defining moment. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You've been lauded for it. You'll be awarded again for it tomorrow in New York. To rationalize that with what you're hearing from the Speaker of the House today was such an extreme contrast.
7: You know, to me, my service on January 6th was a patriotic thing to do. I love this country and I, you know, You know, you fight hard in campaigns for your team to win, but when you don't, you accept the loss and you have a peaceful transfer of power. That's core to maintaining our democracy is a peaceful transfer of power. And I couldn't believe that as somebody who had escaped a country that uh, made political transitions through violence that I found myself on January 6th hiding in the basement of the Capitol while my fellow Americans ransacked uh, the building in an effort to overturn the elections. Um, so my service on January 6th was my patriotic duty to shed light on what happened and to ensure that it never happens again.
2: Incredible. I appreciate your answering that the way you did. Uh, Stephanie Murphy, the former Congresswoman Democrat from Florida, thank you for always uh, being with us when you come to Washington. It's great to see you again. I've a great Thanksgiving. Happy New Year in advance if we don't <laughs> see you before then, but we'll try to fix that. I'm Joe Matthew on the fastest show in politics. Stay with us here on the radio, on the satellite and on YouTube. This is Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Not a very fun day in the classroom for the presidents of some of America's top universities today, including Harvard this hearing underway on Capitol Hill that we told you about with the presidents of Harvard, uh, MIT, and Penn. It has to do with anti-Semitism on campus, and you can imagine where lawmakers are going on this. They've received enormous criticism for the language and the actions that we've heard and seen from pro-Palestinian protesters on these campuses. Here's a taste with Harvard President uh, Gay, who is uh, speaking with Elise Stefanik, earlier, uh, Claudine Gay of Harvard, again, with her counterparts from Penn and MIT. Here's Stefanik and Gay in the hearing earlier today.
8: I will say again,
7: that type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard?
8: It is at odds with the values of Harvard.
7: Can you but not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard?
8: We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, harassment, does that speech and not cross that
7: barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel?
2: That's more of what I expected here, and we could keep going with it as we introduce Wendy Benjamins into the conversation. Of course, Bloomberg's senior Washington editor and a regular voice here on the program. This is an interesting exercise because I'm not sure anything comes of it. Uh, Will there be new policies or is this just a public scolding from some angry lawmakers?
8: Well, that's what the lawmakers exactly are saying, is that these are very nice words that uh, Dr. Gay and the others are saying, um, that they don't tolerate hate speech and they don't tolerate their students feeling threatened, et cetera, et cetera. But okay, then what's next? Seems to be the big question here. Are they going to institute policies? And there's a very fine line between instituting policies against threatening speech and and squelching the freedom of speech on a university campus Mm -hmm. where one is supposed to be able to air all the views. So I, I don't envy being in the president's of the university's shoes, on the other hand, right outside the hearing room, as our field producer Tyler Kendall was telling us, Pretty there angry, were yeah. it was incredibly angry and like pre-fight pushing yeah, and yeah. stuff like that um, from uh, pro-Palestinian uh, protesters mm-hmm. at pro-Israeli protesters. So it was going on in real time just outside the door. Incredible, yeah, it really is.
2: incredible optics here, and you wonder if it's not lawmakers who will end up make a difference, but very wealthy alumni. who are not only protesting, think of Bill Ackman, think of even Mitt Romney, but pulling back on money.
8: Right. Some of them who are some of the best grassroots fundraisers for these universities Mm -hmm. have decided, I mean, in terms of collecting other alumni donations and giving them, they are down to $1 donations in protest. And then while this hearing was going on, a group of UPenn students sued the university in a Philadelphia court for not doing enough to protect them. Uh, on campus, so it's it's just a very very tense and difficult. Um, this is almost the culmination of what's been happening on campuses for a while. Yes, um, as a lot of views are being heard that were you didn't always be heard on campuses. Before.
2: Listen to Penn's Liz McGill. Everyone has their own approach here and how she interacted with lawmakers today. This is from opening remarks.
0: Anti-Semitism, an old, viral and pernicious evil has been steadily rising in our society, and these world events have dramatically accelerated that surge. Few places have proven immune, including Philadelphia and campuses like ours. This is unacceptable. We immediately investigate any hateful act, cooperating with both law enforcement and the FBI, where we have identified individuals who have committed these acts in violation of either policy or law. We initiate disciplinary proceedings and engage law enforcement.
2: Isn't that a more effective message? Here's the action we're taking.
0: Yes, that is a
8: much, just what I was thinking before you asked that, much more effective message, much more calming Congress down much more of calming down and what they really don't want is any federal oversight or pulling back of grants or things like that that these that I mean this is a pocketbook issue Mm -hmm. for these universities not only alumni donations as we mentioned earlier but students not wanting to go there and then of course the federal government pulling back on on any largesse they give the they give the university so yes I think here's what I'm going to do about it is a better response
2: 100% Uh, we'll see what comes if anything of this hearing and talk about it with our pal Wendy Benjamin But it's uh, a debate we're looking forward to tomorrow night. We got the lineup. Only four this time. Right. I had to actually, this is terrible. I had to stop and think, well, wait, who else was there? Was Tim Scott? Was Tim Scott the last time, right? Uh, I don't know if that makes a difference for any of these four. It's going to be DeSantis, Haley, Christie, Ramaswamy. Right. Uh, What's the strategy for any of them? Is this, I mean, who's watching? Does it matter?
8: I. This is the Maybe? big race for second, big I mean, deal, right? Right, but exactly. What's it come to here? I, our, I our colleague Philip Bump in uh, the Washington Post had a headline today that said Nikki Haley surges dot 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 to <laughs> double digits. <laughs> right. I, you know, this right. is
2: to thirty points behind Trump.
8: Right. I I think there is still benefit in hearing from the alternatives. You know. Trump is on a glide path to win Iowa and go on and on and win the nomination. On the other hand, the governor endorsed somebody else. Nikki Haley is doing well in New Hampshire. There is a lot of discomfort among, you know, Republicans. With Donald Trump, yep. and so if they are looking for an alternative, okay, your chart shows Haley has ten percent to Donald Trump sixty
2: one.
8: You know, maybe there's twenty twenty eight after all.
2: Yeah, and that's nationally realizing she's doing better yeah. in New Hampshire. She is doing better. But you better know, than Alan Hampshire. Lichtman was calling us out on balance of power last evening for being part of essentially a, a media narrative that this is some sort of mainstream media narrative that there's no real difference between what Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are doing. They're both losing badly to Donald Trump.
8: Well, at the moment they are, but he does have a point that let's see what happens when the votes are taken.
2: Yes, but do you qualify momentum as a real thing? Because that's what we're talking about
8: here. Well, yeah, I mean, momentum works until it doesn't, right? Sure. I mean, he has momentum and then he could say something. But a she has home. momentum. She does argue, have right? momentum. As
2: Ron DeSantis is described as a wounded bird, if you ask Doctor. Right,
8: Trump. right. He is getting the attention he's getting is increasingly negative. The attention she is getting, Haley, is increasingly positive. She has also got the benefit of people who are looking, whose primary goal is to stop Donald Trump from coming back to the White House, and it doesn't really matter to them who it is as long as it's not Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, Jamie Dimon was suggesting that even Democrats give to Nikki Haley, and I think Reid Hoffman today gave to Nikki Haley two (laughs) hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's not chump change, Uh and so you know, yes, I guess she does have momentum. The question is. Will it be enough to beat him in a significant state? Right. Of course, right after New Hampshire for the Republicans is South Carolina, her mm-hmm. home state. And a her, chance
2: to codify what may have just happened. Right, exactly.
8: Yep. With Tim Scott out of the running, he was the South Carolina senator. It could be that South Carolinians will come around for, uh, for her. On the other hand, he got tremendously cheered at a stadium in South Carolina <laughs> a couple of weeks oh, ago. True. Uh,
2: I have to ask you, Wendy, while you're with us about whether young people are showing up. Um, this new youth vote poll from Harvard, the Institute for Politics, pretty interesting here. It finds just 49% of 18 to 29-year-olds definitely plan to vote for president. 49%. That's down from 57% in 2019.
8: Uh, it was good while young Hispanic
2: Americans <laughs> had the steepest drop. Black American Young black American voters, second steepest. Um, they've basically ruled out both of these old guys they as they see it. They are but what if we call double at, haters. That's right. Okay. Yeah, if you're yeah. looking at 18 to 30-year-olds, though, that's coming out of Joe Biden's side, if if anywhere. Isn't it, it is
8: largely coming out of Joe Biden's side. I'm sure there are young people who support Donald Trump. But, yes, mostly the reason they turned out so much in 2016 and 2020. Well, first, let's start at the beginning. They turned out incredibly in 2008. Yes to elect Barack Obama because that was going to be part of history and it's fun to be part of history right. but 2016 and 2020, it was an anti-Trump movement, and Biden seemed like their kind of guy, and and he promised a lot of things (laughs) on climate and student loans and all these things. Well, here we are four years later, and the bill has come due, and we have an 81-year-old Democratic president and a 78-year-old likely challenger, and people 18 to 30, I mean, these these guys are their grandparents' age. They just don't see... They don't see politics the same way. They don't see the world the same way. They've grown up in a completely different world than these guys did. And so, yes, I think their thought is, forget it, I'll just stay home, which is terrible because we Riddle. need their voices. We'll see where
2: we are, I guess, in yeah. six months to a year. but The bill has come due. Boy, and Wendy has receipts. It's great to see you, as great always. Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Washington Senior Editor. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com.